0: Hello again, welcome back to New Books of Military History with your host, Bob Wintermute. Once again, we are pleased to bring you an in depth discussion with authors of recent, cutting edge scholarship related to military history. It's been some time since I've interviewed an author on a colonial or revolutionary war topic, but today's interview, I hope, goes some way toward addressing this oversight. Today's guest is Mark R. Anderson. The author of The Battle for the Fourteenth Colony, America's War of Liberation in Canada, 1774 to 1776, published by the University Press of New England. Now, I don't know about you, but the whole Quebec campaign undertaken at the order of the Continental Congress in 1775 is rather unrepresented in the historiography. Most of what I've come to understand about the campaign prior to this book was gleaned from various general surveys of the war, which I fear continue to underrepresent this critical point. Mark's book fortunately addresses this oversight, and in the process he crafts a highly detailed political and military narrative of the situation in Canada that is destined to become the standard for years to come. Mark, welcome to New Books in Military History.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. And I noticed, according to the liner notes, uh, you come to this point, publishing a book via a rather unconventional track. Would you mind reviewing how you got to this point with us?
1: Oh, it would be my pleasure. Uh, To start with, I've uh, been what you might call a historian for life. I was one of those kids that uh, read every military history book, that was available in my school libraries and then the local libraries and had to go to move on to colleges before I ever left hometown to go to school. And then I uh, went to Purdue and uh, studied history there. Uh, uh, leaving Purdue, I decided to participate in the pointy end of military history and served active duty in the Air Force for 22 years, uh, but kept myself busy with the uh, research projects of various sorts during that time. Uh, just to keep feeding my historical interests. Uh, during that time, I received uh, my master's in military studies from American Military University, and that was really the uh, spark that led to this whole project.
0: Okay, okay. So you, you've terminated your, your education at this point through American Military University? Yes. Right, okay. Um, the reason I call attention is, of course, is to point out that it is possible for someone without a Ph.D. in history to craft a solidly sourced and detailed narrative suitable for publication in an academic press. At the same time, I think we have to be fair. You know, Your book is in many ways an anomaly when it comes to that. You, know, you bring a measure of attention and insight, I think, to this book that is both representative of your general occupation, but also you know, it's kind of the exception rather than the rule with regard to serious academic texts. What kind of insights or advice would you have for anyone who might be pursuing such a course after reading your book or listening to this interview?
1: Uh, The first uh, thing was that uh, I challenged myself to uh, an academic standard. So if there was an opportunity to research something, I would not pass it up just to... uh, get on with the story but probably the most important part was i found a couple mentors uh, early on that uh, really helped guide me through the rest of the process and i uh, made sure that i had a a very well refined product before i ever brought it to a publisher
0: were these mentors through american military university or from another
1: venue uh, actually what i had done was uh Looked in the literature for people who had recently written on similar topics, and uh, approached several of them. And then a couple of them uh, really helped me out.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, how receptive overall were the people you contacted?
1: It was a mixed bag, um, but the, the the couple that uh, really stood forward uh, <laughs> helped out greatly.
0: Right. I mean, it, there's still a good deal of how I describe it—jealousy, pride of ownership. Um, yeah amongst academic historians, that that we do have the training and the credentials to pursue such a task and that many people who come to the field outside of that traditional track are lacking it. I'm not saying that's the case or I I necessarily agree with that, but it's certainly something that's out there. And uh, I think it's interesting this book is published in the face of that. And if I understand correctly, you've been nominated or have have received some recognition for this book, correct?
1: Yes. The uh, American Revolution Roundtable of Richmond uh, was co recipient of their book award for this last year.
0: That's great. That's great. I mean, it's a signal accomplishment on its own, let alone for somebody, again, who comes into the profession through a non traditional track. And I, I really think that's important that we highlight that. As an option for some of our listeners um, military history is, is not necessarily owned exclusively by the academics in our field although it is our obligation I think to to champion it and develop it and to promote the successful and the appropriate um, practice of our history in our field and I think when we you know when we come up against or we encounter people like yourself, It's actually our obligation, I think, to kind of help spread the word and and help promote what you're doing as well. (laughs) So, uh, well, let's start with the book, okay, Mark? Uh, What prompted you to pursue this topic? Okay, as I
1: mentioned earlier, uh, my master's studies really uh, brought me to it. I had a focus on colonial, revolutionary, and early republic, American military history. And one of the classes I had the opportunity to take uh, was the Canadian campaign, and the American Revolution. It was really a uh, somewhat whimsical choice at the time. It was one of those topics I didn't really know anything about. So when I saw the course title, I decided I would take it. And then uh, my military experience, uh, I ended up in 2006 uh, working as a planner for operations in Afghanistan. And at the time, uh, there was a very heavy focus both in Afghanistan and Iraq about trying to establish uh, much more Western forms of government in those countries. And it uh, led me to think back to that, that class that I had had and uh, recognize that there was probably some common ties there in an American uh, zeal to uh, liberate oppressed people and help bring them a more enlightened form of government that was like ours. So I started off uh, just looking at the Continental Congress and their grand strategic efforts to work with the Canadians. Right. But, uh, As I started to research deeper and deeper and uh, look into the literature, I found that uh, the French-Canadian side in particular was uh, highly underrepresented. uh, So that was a major part of my research, was to try to dig out as much of the French-Canadian side of it as possible. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: The previous literature had relied on uh, a handful of loyalist Canadian sources that uh, were pretty subjective. And tended to highlight a few anecdotal patches. And uh, my goal was really to quilt together all the sources I could to try to tell their side of the story while looking at this uh, theme of the Canadian campaign being a war of liberation as well.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, let's go to the beginning of the project, where you know the idea of seizing Canada was not just a last-minute opportunistic decision that Congress undertakes uh, after the Siege of Boston opens in April of seventeen seventy-five. What was the general perception of Canada in the other American colonies? So, how did Congress come by this idea of expanding the conflict to Canada?
1: Well, to to look at Canada, you have to. Uh Examine the differences between it and the other uh, 13 colonies uh, at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Canada had uh, been New France, a French colony, up until the uh, Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War. And uh, with the uh, peace in 1763, it was ceded to uh, the British Empire, and uh, they established uh, control there. Uh, And with uh, that the, uh, what had been homogeneously French Catholic population began to see some Anglo-Protestant, uh, settlers coming in, uh, as well. Okay. Okay.
0: Um, about these, these settlers in Canada, how well informed were they about events in the South in 1775? There
1: was, uh, a good amount of communication. Uh, it just took a particularly long time, uh, There was not a great amount of overland or over lake communication. Uh, They relied heavily on uh, Atlantic communication. And one of the key uh, features of Canada is that it is dominated by the St. Lawrence, which feeds out uh, northeast to the Atlantic, away effectively from uh, the New England and and other American states. So there was a good amount of communication. It just was not uh, as timely as it was between
0: the other colonies. Okay. Okay, and you know, the general response to this news, as it appears,
1: the uh, because of the nature of the Canadian uh, the government in Canada, which was actually the province of Quebec, mm-hmm. uh, it was not. It didn't have the same traditions, and it was not in the same uh, maturity of government as the other colonies. So, while the other colonies were being taxed uh, for, to support the empire. Uh, Quebec was actually receiving money at that time, and and the people were not taxed. So the key touch points until 1774 were not quite the same.
0: Right. You know, it's quite the competition among Americans for command of the expedition. You know, could you just introduce us to these chief players here? And I guess maybe as a add-on, how do they rate in comparison with each other circa April, May 1775? Uh,
1: in uh, the early stages, uh, well, I, I would like to take a, a step back and, and sure. uh, talk about the political approach because that's really uh, key to uh, the, the narrative, I think. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, so, looking at the political side of things, which is really uh, a key factor in how this whole campaign develops, uh, we have to look at the Quebec Act of 1774, uh, the uh, Anglo. Uh, Protestant Canadians had been fervently fighting for a uh, House of Assembly of their own, uh, and they were opposed by a uh, French-Canadian elite who saw that they would have better opportunities if they worked hand-in-hand directly with uh, an executive government. So that uh, conflict waged on for the first decade of uh, the province of Quebec, and then the governor, Guy Carlton, who took side with the French elite, went to London and helped Uh, draft what became the Quebec Act of 1774. Mm -hmm. And this act uh, recognized the Catholic Church, uh, did not permit a House of Assembly at that time, but instead established a legislative council that was appointed by the governor, Mm -hmm. and created means by which the French-Canadian elite could participate in that as Catholics. So it really entrenched the position of the uh, church and these French-Canadian elites in relation to the government and distanced the Anglo-Protestant merchants. Uh, So when the First Continental Congress met at the end of 1774, they saw an opportunity uh, to help out their uh, fellow Anglo-Protestants in Canada and attack some of these measures that they felt were not uh, properly British that were being taken in Canada. So this was sort of the subtext or uh, underlying motives that that helped develop into the campaign okay, okay.
0: yeah something that's again is missing from the general narrative is this i don't want to call it ethnic distinction, but certainly this this distinction on the basis of of confession and and identity that is present amongst the planners of of the expedition and the Congress itself, the idea that you know. They're not just going up there to spread American context of liberty. They're also going up there, in a sense, to alleviate the, um, the, the repression of other English or Anglo-Protestants at the, at the hands of a French, well, we can't really call them a minority, because the French do outnumber the British settlers, or British-based settlers in Canada, but certainly a recently conquered French population. And yeah. that, that's completely absent from the, the descriptions of the the expedition up until this point. Yes. So, well, let's, let's go back to that original question I framed then, since we have this, this background in place. You know, who are the chief players amongst the Americans who want uh, to take command here?
1: Okay. Initially, uh, this starts uh, opening up in military aspects before there is ever even a Continental Army. So. It is uh, individual colonies acting uh, on their own mm-hmm. with sort of a common spirit, so what happens is in the uh, right after the Lexington and Concord in april seventeen seventy five uh, two different colonies have plans to take Port Ticonderoga
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which is the gateway to the Lake Champlain Corridor leading up to the Richelieu River and into Canada and This has been the traditional war path for generations uh. Connecticut sends a party north, and they meet up with Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys, uh, and their plan is to take uh, Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, at the same time, uh, Benedict Arnold meets with the Massachusetts uh, government, and gets authorized to recruit a regiment to take Fort Ticonderoga. And he also has one other additional objective that I'll talk about in a second mm-hmm. uh, that is very important in the how this develops. So Ethan Allen uh, gathers troops, gets ready to take the fort, and Benedict Arnold, who has left his recruiting officers behind him, shows up on the scene, and there's a contest for who will control this raid on Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, They establish some sort of co-command, which is uh, very interesting. Two very uh, ambitious individuals, uh, very spirited. Uh, but they managed to make it work at least long enough to surprise Fort Ticonderoga without much of a fight, no losses on either side, and the rebels now have Fort Ticonderoga in their hands. Uh, Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys are considered rather undisciplined, particularly by Benedict Arnold, uh, who wants to have a little bit more order in things. So Arnold uh, sets up a separate camp as his Massachusetts troops start showing up, uh, after the capture of Fort Ticonderoga, and he starts working towards his second objective, which the Massachusetts government had given him, which was to capture a uh, small lake warship that, that the British government had up in Canada. So he gathers his men with a captured ship and sails up there in mid-May to uh, raid this Fort St. John, which was the border port, and mm-hmm. seize the ship that was there. So This is the first intervention, military intervention into Canada. Uh, Arnold effectively achieves his objectives, and quickly withdraws. uh, Seizes everything he can and destroys what he can. Okay. So now control of uh, the Lake Champlain corridor belongs to the rebels. Uh, But the other side of the leadership is Ethan Allen uh, leads his Green Mountain Boys up there without any clear objective. They seem like they're going to stay for a while, which (laughs) spends some of the Canadians. And uh, but eventually. The small British Army forces that are in Montreal march out and chase them off. So it's a mixed bag. Benedict Arnold uh, rages up there, and and gets his objective, where Ethan Allen uh, is sort of meandering about and uh, creating havoc.
0: You know, I guess in a way too, you can see that it's some of the problems attendant to the militia force, or to some of the yeah. complaints about militia forces, that are you know, and their advantages as well, laid out in that 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 an, uh, episode he just described. I mean. On the one hand, you have Arnold's militia being restricted to a very finite, uh, very specific set of goals and being able to accomplish it, while Allen acting much more uh, freely and much more loosely uh, with very little formal mandate. You know, kind of his forces trying to collapse upon themselves. And that's going to become a hallmark of the campaign, isn't it? Yes.
1: Yeah, there are uh, varying degrees of discipline and and, uh, regimentalization uh, amongst the different units, particularly as the the campaign develops.
0: Right, right. But I'm also speaking towards the general critiques of of militia forces that take shape during the period, too, yeah. What was the role of the local Indians during this stage of the conflict?
1: There were active... uh, efforts by the United Colonies, because this was still a year from them ever becoming the United States, to neutralize the Indians, uh, the Iroquois and the Canadian tribes, uh, as much as they could communicate with them. And there were um, uh, several envoys sent to meet with the uh, praying Indian villages that were in Canada near the settled areas, and they had effectively neutralized uh, those militarily speaking. Uh-huh. Um, the British government was torn on. Uh, they had those who advocated a war of frontier raids and, and uh, pillaging, and then Governor Car- Carleton uh, in Canada took the other side, and he wanted to restrain the Indians to defensive purpose. So that was how they ended up uh, in this campaign. Was they served as auxiliaries for the defense of Canada. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: What about the Canadian themselves? I mean, how do they feel the Americans? Uh,
1: this is one of the very interesting parts of, of the story as I examined it. The uh, French Canadian elite the, these were the seigneur or landlords that owned technically owned the land of the vastly uh, the vast majority of the population were tenant farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, the French Canadian elite had thrown their uh, lot in with the government, so they were actively looking to support it in any way they can. On the other hand, 99% of the population uh, that was the farmers tended to have uh, a pretty neutral view of the whole fight. They did not uh, necessarily think that they had a major role in it to start with. This is where the the Quebec Act comes into play, as well as the raids uh, by Arnold and Allen. And that's really the trick trigger of the Canadian side of, of this revolution. Uh, the raids by Allen and Arnold trigger Governor Carlton to uh, establish martial law and try to mobilize the militia. And this is the point at which the uh, rural farmer, Abitant of uh, Canada, begin to take sides. They actively, uh, well, in most places, they passively resist uh, mobilization. Uh, People who are offered commissions as militia officers refuse to to receive them. And in three key places around Montreal, there are actually uh, uprisings against attempts to mobilize them. And the largest is in the area of uh, Chambly, which is on the Richelieu River, which is fed by Lake Champlain, so very close to the border areas. Uh, There are reports of thousands of Canadians gathering here to resist any attempts to mobilize them, which is probably a, a... tenfold exaggeration, um, but still a very significant uh, body for the population of that area. And this is going to be the seedbed of cooperation with uh, forces that are going to start assembling uh, to the south. So really, at this time, Canada is having its own mini-revolution, and like many other places in the the colonies, uh, it isn't necessarily tied directly to the uh, no taxation without representation spirit of the continental Congress, right. but it is something that can feed into a common resistance to uh, the government in london
0: okay well, if that's the case, is there any point in the pre december seventeen seventy five period in Quebec where the Americans could have effectively won this campaign uh, that that
1: is uh, the million dollar question um, there's certainly militarily I believe that the campaign was inevitably going to fail, mm-hmm. but there were political opportunities that could have uh, anchored Canadian support for the long-term that, that were missed. Uh, kind of it, Similar to areas like New Jersey that were uh, transited several times by the armies, and there, were, there was always a degree of support for either side as, one, as the other side occupied it. There was a possibility for that in Canada if the Continental Congress and the uh, Northern Army had really taken efforts to solidify their political support. That is one of the greatest weaknesses of the campaign was those Canadians who were actively supporting the continental cause all tied themselves to the military side of things and did not uh, succeed in establishing a Canadian uh, patriot or Canadian rebel government.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we talked about briefly about some of the earlier American leaders, you know, uh, Ethan Allen, uh, Bennett Darnold, who's going to reappear again. Um, but let's talk about the others as well. I'm thinking particularly, uh, Richard Montgomery and David Wooster. I'd like to address each of them in turn, if possible, you know, to give our audience some insight into your own analysis while also piquing their interest in the book. And, um, with regard to Richard Montgomery, I mean, I guess the, the question for me is, you know, does he really deserve the hype that has accumulated over the years? I mean, I always recall reading about how he's this gifted officer who had the misfortune of being injured and subsequently dying of his wounds in Quebec. Um, and that's about all I know about him. I mean, and you reveal that he kind of, there, this is not the, necessarily the full story with Richard Montgomery, correct?
1: Correct. Getting us to Richard Montgomery, uh, we'll start with uh, June 1775 when the Continental Army is formed and uh, a northern army is established to protect the forts and look at opportunities in Canada. And that's uh, put under the command of a New Yorker, uh, Major General Philip Schuyler, and he initially helps gather the army at Fort Ticonderoga, and uh, Brigadier General Richard Montgomery, who had been a former British uh, captain had uh, been married into the New York Livingstons, who were one of the very uh, powerful families there, and quickly rose in the Patriot uh, government uh, ranks. And then as they established the Continental Army, he was given a Brigadier generalship. Uh, So he uh, becomes deputy to Schuyler. And as the Army gets gathered at Fort Ticonderoga, Continental Congress gives General Schuyler Uh, authority, discretionary authority, to invade Canada. Uh, The key caveat there being if it would not be disagreeable to the Canadians with the goal of uh, freeing them from the oppression uh, of the British government. Uh, General Schuyler, however, has other important tasks. So he gets called off to an Indian uh, conference at the exact moment that the intelligence arrives that sparks the need for the the Northern Army to go forward. There's uh, British ships being completed at the northern end, that would challenge control of Lake Champlain, and there also uh, repeated requests from these Canadian rebels in the Chambly area for support from the Northern Army, calling, you know, asking, when are you going to come and help us out, or should we just surrender? Uh, it, the, the Canadians had not been in the military operation at this time, but they effectively saw they were going to have to uh, concede their struggle with the government if they couldn't get support. Right. So General Montgomery happens to be in command at the point where this decision is made, and he leads the army uh, north. And uh, General Schuyler arrives uh, as they right as they reach Canada, and they establish uh, camps on an island in the Richelieu River. Um, General Schuyler, however, has very poor health, so within a couple of weeks he is forced to withdraw back to Fort Ticonderoga and effectively become a theater commander while. General Montgomery has control in Canada itself. Right. Uh, once the Continental Army establishes a, a foothold, General Montgomery is very effective in working with the Canadian uh, partisans that uh, start to be established. Uh, he does a very good job of maintaining discipline within his uh, troops, and that they're not insulting the Canadians' uh, Catholicism. They are not robbing, pillaging. They're paying for everything that they take and basically doing everything they can to establish good relationships with the Canadians right. in an attempt to uh, w- keep them on, on the friendly side. Uh, the other side of Montgomery's challenges are that his own troops are a constant heartache for him. Uh, the The Continental Army at this time is more of a coalition than a national army, so each of the colonies' troops look out for their own interests and uh, tend to deride the other colonies and blame them for any failures uh, whenever things get slow. And uh, Montgomery is continually lamenting the the lack of uh, respect that he gets. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a former uh, company officer in the British Army, (laughs) he was uh, highly shocked every time that he was told that the troops would not do something without being consulted.
0: How long had he been living in the colonies at this point?
1: Uh, he had only been settled for uh, a, a few years.
0: Yeah, so he's, uh, he's still an outsider then, yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. So that that is uh, the, the conflicting side of uh, General Montgomery. And he makes uh, a mixed bag of decisions. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the things that I saw was that there were times where he still looked at things as a uh, company or maybe field-grade officer uh, perspective, Rather than a, a general officer, he did get the did get the strategic view of the Canadians needed to be considered uh, partners in this. Right. But in handling his own troops, there were times, particularly where he did not uh, seem to, to understand uh, his role as a general officer, and this would lead to to his demise at the Battle of Quebec City, mm-hmm. where he is at the very front end of his troops, and the first uh, cannon shots, right. he is uh, killed.
0: So Let's back for a moment one of the regular points that you know people make about the American Revolution and this goes back to the point we addressed earlier um, is the conflict between regular forces and militia companies. you know the fact that militias were supposed to be generally unreliable frequently failed to take actions that would breached the immediate terms of their enlistment as opposed to regulars who were more solid and more reliable in combat. Now granted, this is an early point to be talking about a rare about regulars in the uh, In the American context, but was this an issue in Canada for the Americans? At this point, it
1: was uh, really not all the troops that were there were uh, established by the each colony mm-hmm. uh, rather than being militia. they were provincial troops, so that they had a little bit more organization and a little bit less High to home than the regular militia troops.
0: So, to interrupt you there for a moment, then, so the provincial troops have a different mandate entirely from a, from a militia. Correct?
1: Yes. Yes. They, they would be what would become the state troops, which were a, a role somewhere between militia and what would be the Continental Army mm-hmm. okay. uh, Regular.
0: What about the British response to the American invasion? You know, it seems that Carlton is really left in his own to deal with this incursion. Um... You know is there any sense of urgency in England about this invasion? uh Yes th- there is, but uh given
1: the geography and uh, transportation uh, of the time, there's not a lot they can do for several months right um, in fact, because Governor Carleton had assumed that he would have so much Canadian support, he had sent he'd agreed to having uh, all but two of his regiments from Canada sent to Boston to, uh, support, uh, forces down there. Uh, so he, there was hardly any force regular force in Canada at the, at the time of the invasion. So he's fighting a very defensive action. Uh, he puts all his eggs in one basket at Fort St. John on the border, uh, hoping to hold the uh, front door. Uh, and in the meantime, he is, uh, calling for reinforcements, but knows that given uh, the time uh, for communication and the weather of Canada, which effectively cuts off uh, communication from uh, roughly November to May as the St. Lawrence is frozen, that he is going to have to hold out on his own until the spring of 1776.
0: Uh Yeah, In many ways, it seems that David Wooster, more so than Montgomery or Arnold, is the pivotal actor on the American side. How do his actions, or perhaps maybe you know more properly his lack of actions, set in motion the events in seventeen seventy six in Canada uh,
1: David Wooster was a, a particularly intriguing uh, character as I looked at this uh, historically in the in the literature he has been maligned from every side for his his role in, in this campaign with uh, David Wooster was a uh, Continental Brigadier General from Connecticut, uh, but he had very strong ties to his Connecticut troops, and that's one of the things that he has uh, faulted for a rather provincial uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, when General Montgomery died at Quebec City, uh, David Wooster became the senior officer in Canada for the Continental Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, he happened, He was back at Montreal at the time, so that's 150 miles away from what was uh, the front at that time, and his responsibility had been to uh, keep the uh, rear areas passive and and start gathering support with the Canadians.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, So uh, command falls into his lap, and he decides that it is most important for him to stay in Montreal, at least for a while, uh, to make sure that the rear areas are safe, because if the Army had to retreat, Uh, Would have to come back through that area, and he had he felt that he had begun establishing some relationships with key Canadians that uh, might support overall uh, strategic objectives. The downside of Wooster is that uh, he seems to take a heavy hand in dealing with loyalists. Yeah, that's the key thing that he is criticized for: uh, a lack of understanding of the French Canadians and a uh, heavy hand with the Anglo-Canadian loyalists. Uh, I think that both those accounts are actually uh, somewhat unfair. Right. He's put in a no-win uh, situation. He's, he asks for advice from uh, General Schuyler, who's the Northern Army commander, and from the Continental Congress, and regularly fails to get it. So he's, he's left to act on his own. He doesn't really have sufficient force to uh, get out amongst the Canadian parishes to establish uh, any... Uh, Report there, so he's working uh, primarily in Montreal. Right. Uh, the things that he's doing against loyalists, however, are similar to things that are being done in the other colonies. It's it just, it's really highlighted that because he's in a effectively foreign population, that it seems even more heavy-handed, in that he uh, makes it illegal to speak out against the Continental Congress. He uh, arrests he uh, opposition leaders and sends them down to the other colonies. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I said earlier, it's really not out of character for what the more uh, energetic officers are doing in in other places at this time, as they're trying to figure out what exactly continental aims are and how much free speech is part of this versus uh, suppressing opposition that's going to undermine the entire uh, strategic effort.
0: Right. Well, it's also the idea too of just the the basic contingencies and circumstances of campaigning in a harsh winter environment is another factor, as well as the idea. I would think too that, and you raised this earlier, the Americans are you know they're largely a Protestant army surrounded or acting in an area which is primarily of Catholic confession, and the the Catholics are associated with the government.
1: Yes. David Wooster, uh, another thing that he is uh, criticized harshly for is his relationship with the the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And in my research, I really found that uh, the key accusations against him on that account uh, may, in fact, be fabricated. I have not been able to find any uh, evidence uh, of one story sparked by one loyalist account that he actually shut down uh, Catholic churches on. For Christmas mass, right um, so uh, that was an interesting uh, thing that has been assumed by effectively every historian who's looked at it since, and right. i I saw the need to challenge uh, that accusation against Wooster well. and,
0: and it's a good challenge because it raises a point as well again about you know what exactly are the American ambitions and goals and intentions here. You have a commander like Wooster who, as you report, is actually going out of his way to accommodate the local french uh, Catholic um, clergy and and, and uh, elites and yet hes he's in doing so he's receiving criticism from from his own troops as well or from his own men as well as to you know uh, who you know what what is you know what is your confession here or what are what are what are our objectives here I just find that it that very interesting.
1: Yeah, he, he was very much put in a, a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't position. And I think uh, he had could have an abrasive personality uh, to some people, and that certainly didn't play in his favor. He may have been uh, a person who spoke a bit too bluntly uh, to others. So he gathered uh, a good set of enemies by the time that uh, the Canadian campaign was over. And, and as the Continental Congress, uh, jumping to after the fact, came to look for scapegoats, there were a, a good number of people that thought the finger could be fairly pointed
0: at Booster. Yeah, um, including Arnold at that point, too. Yeah. 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 So, well, you know, I want, before we move up to that point, you know, another thing is, as, as I'm reading your book, you know, I'm putting in mind of John Grenier's work on peripheral warfare in New England and Nova Scotia, you know, and it's especially the point that he sets up of how Yankee militias from New England were extremely aggressive Against the French and Indians in Nova Scotia several generations before. Um, do you find similar problems with the New England militia in the invasion of Canada, acting overly aggressive or violent against resident civilians or Indians?
1: Uh, actually, not. And this is going back to, to General Montgomery. This is what I feel was his uh, major accomplishment: was that he kept his even the New Englanders well disciplined and seemed to have inculcated. Uh, a, a need for a sense of respect right, so particularly in in the first half of the campaign seventeen seventy five half uh, there are effectively no uh reports of insults except to a specific set of very well targeted loyalists <laughs> who are uh, pillaged merely because of their political orientation. the general offenses that you might expect. Amongst these zealous New England Protestants, amongst the uh, French Canadian Catholics, simply aren't happening according to any records that are out there. Yeah,
0: I mean well, Montgomery and Arnold both bring war chests with them, filled with gold, just for that pur- purpose of compensating the colonists. You you reveal. Yes,
1: uh, and that becomes one of the uh, key reasons for the the failure of the campaign in in the long run is that. They both run out of money uh, about the end of 1775. And the French Canadians, based on their experience in the French and Indian War, had been burned by French paper money. And they basically regarded anything that was paid for with paper money as uh, robbery. They they did not have any hope that they were ever going to get compensation for things taken with paper money.
0: Yeah. Well, at one point, like you say, Congress has a committee. To Canada to assess things, and you know, I guess in your account, you know, to consider the issue of Quebec and Canada joining the thirteen colonies uh, against England. I guess that's the prelude question. You know, who's on the committee because that's important. But then also, what does the committee fund?
1: Uh, well, there are actually two committees, and uh, they're sparked by. A request from General Montgomery and General Schuyler. Basically, at the point that they've established a foothold in Canada, they're already writing back to Philadelphia requesting that the Continental Congress send some representatives uh, north to help provide uh, two key things. One uh, is uh, some discipline in the troops, they're hoping that uh, some political representation will reinforce the military leadership. Uh, in their control of the troops. And then strategically more important is to help the Canadians establish a government uh, that could join the Continental Congress. And actually the first Continental Congress had sent an invitation specifically to the Canadians inviting them to join the 1775 Continental Congress, the second Continental Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was an open invitation for any Canadians that uh, would uh, feel that they could attend to come into Philadelphia and represent Canada. So uh, jumping to uh, later in 1775 after the invasion had occurred uh, and these requests from Schuyler and uh, Montgomery come for a uh, delegation to be sent to Canada, the first group gets uh, sent north uh, at what would have been the perfect time. Uh, they would have arrived about the time in Canada, about the time that Montreal had fallen uh, to General Montgomery and his army. Mm-hmm. But uh, they get to Fort Ticonderoga and talk with General Schuyler and decide that General Schuyler seems to have all their uh, main points well understood, and decide to turn back and head back to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I, this is one of the key missed opportunities. I feel uh, mm-hmm. is this three uh, man delegation and their choice to. Uh, Return uh, to Philadelphia rather than uh, undertake the hardship of going to Canada in November and December, which would certainly have been a a hard trip but would have uh, met the strategic goals much better than their uh, short visit with General Schuyler. Mm -hmm. So, after uh, the Quebec City defeat, uh, where General Montgomery is killed, Congress relooks at this uh, need to send a committee north and takes their time so that it's not until uh, the spring starts to roll around that they finally send a committee north. And the key uh, player that has been highlighted historically is Benjamin Franklin, his chosen right. for this, uh, because of his ability in French and his uh, uh, world recognition, uh, unique for the Americans at this time. Uh, other key players that are sent m- with this group, are uh, Samuel Chase, who's from Maryland. Mm-hmm. And Maryland is highlighted because it has traditionally had uh, tolerance and uh, a, Catholic represent- or Catholic, uh, a number of Catholics in Maryland. They had earlier had, had more tolerance, but it had progressively eroded. But they're playing on, on this perspective as Maryland as a Catholic uh, colony. Uh, Samuel Chase really becomes the uh, leader of this. Um, he, he is, uh, again, an unrecogni- under, uh, under-recognized character in this. He's really the one putting it all together. Uh, Charles Carroll uh, of Carrollton, also of Maryland, is a Catholic who, based on Maryland law, is not allowed to represent Maryland at this time. But he had been participating in discussions up in the Continental Congress as sort of an unofficial representative and he has chosen to go along. And then the last uh, unofficial member is Charles Carroll's cousin, John Carroll, who is a Jesuit priest, mm-hmm. and the hope is that he can uh, join the committee and perhaps uh, neutralize a bit of the Catholic Church's opposition right. to the the invader, invasion.
0: Right. I mean, so with the, the composition of the committee, the importance it, it, it shows that Congress. I, I would, argue, you know, it shows Congress is actually very cognizant of the issues that it perhaps has created in Canada up to this point by making such a, a, a committee of this type over these individuals.
1: Yes. yeah, It was it was a uh, recognition of the things that needed to be addressed, but it was done way too late mm-hmm. to have uh, the desired effect. Mm-hmm. So the committee, uh, getting back to your original question, the committee arrives in Canada uh, just at the point where the military situation is going to completely deteriorate. Um, they, they find that, that uh, the troops are ill-disciplined, the army's out of money, and their key recommendations are tend to be that unless they can uh, get money and troops and supplies north very quickly, that they're better off withdrawing to some... Uh, defensible point either in Canada or to defend uh, Lake Champlain Uh Uh, so just their initial letters are already uh, conceding defeat as far as holding all of Canada Mm
0: -hmm. okay well that leads us to what ultimately happens to the expedition you know it it does withdraw They, they leave their positions outside of Quebec they have Anna Montreal but it never just quite crumbles away does it? I mean, it, it seems like there's some lingering notion of keeping a force in the field, isn't there?
1: Uh, yes, the um, until the very end game, there's always hope that they can uh, maintain a foothold in in Canada. The uh, uh, 1776, there's reinforcements, and this is really where the uh, relationships with the can- Canadians deteriorate. These new re- reinforcements. Uh, seemingly from Pennsylvania and New Jersey seem to be the main culprits uh, are committing acts of depredation as they're marching up to Quebec city yeah. uh, and uh, insulting uh, Canadians as they're gathering for church and, and it's exact sorts of things that Montgomery had effectively uh, avoided. And this is really because there's no leadership for the 150 mile stretch between Montreal and uh, Quebec City, where their destination is. And they, they arrive. Uh, the army is always pit, ha- patched together outside Quebec City. They're effectively maintaining a blockade, but not really a siege. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only hope is to starve out the defenders that are uh, in Quebec City. And it is all going to fall apart in uh, early May when the British relief fleet arrives uh, from the British Isles with thousands of troops. And everybody knows that as soon as they arrive, unless Quebec City is in the rebels' hands, they have no means to, to fight them. Yeah. Uh, and, and it leads to an extended retreat. Uh, mainly the, the, the long uh, duration of this retreat is driven by Gen- uh, Governor Carlton's policy, in that he wants to gather his force, allow the rebels to retreat, and perhaps recognize the error of their ways and not really force a battle. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a uh, two-month withdrawal with only a couple battles in there. Uh, and those. Uh, one of those is actually sparked by the, the Continental Army trying to make a counterattack. Um, so by June of 1776, the Ar- Continental Army is withdrawn to the area around Montreal and the, the Richelieu River, which is, uh, you know, they're... Uh, exit route out through Lake Champlain. Mm -hmm. And uh, at every point, they're, they're recognizing that they simply don't have the force necessary Put up a fight every time they establish a defensive position. As uh, close as the British get, they decide they need to step back another point. And a key thing that also is afflicting the army at this point is smallpox, which from the beginning of 1776 had been taking out uh, on on an average perhaps a third of the army at any time. For an army that was already too weak for its job, this has a, a tremendous impact as well.
0: Oh sure, oh sure. Now, how are the Canadians treating the retreating Americans?
1: they They tend to flow with the uh, the tides of uh, continental success. Mm-hmm. So in the initial retreat from Quebec City, they tend to disappear. Um, however, every time the Continental Army sets up a defensive position and it looks like they are ready to fight to defend Canada, they get a good number of, well a, at least a number of supporters. Uh, a good example is um, in a midpoint uh, down the St. Lawrence River. Uh, they plan to set up a defensive position at a key point, and the French Canadians come out and uh, help uh, excavate some cannon that had been buried by the French back in the French and Indian War to help defend that point. Mm. Um, and then later on, as the Continental Army established its foothold in the uh, Richelieu River, attempting to, to hold that as the last uh, station in Canada there are reportedly thousands of Canadians that come out to, to greet reinforcements that are still arriving. Um, so even at the, the end stages, there are still these Canadians that are that are coming out and seem and reportedly uh, very eager to support the cause. But uh, as the British Army approaches, they uh, obviously uh, can no longer be as eager in, in their support of the Canadian Army. But uh, of note, they uh, unlike other areas in the revolution uh, where loyalists tended to pop up as soon as uh, the uh, British army came. There wasn't really that reaction amongst the French Canadians, mm-hmm. except for the, the elite. The, the French Canadian farmers tended to go from their support of the Continental Army to pretty much a passive position. Afterwards. Right.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. You know, as we finish here, I want to come back to the image of an injured, you know, almost lame Benedict Arnold distressed over having come so close to success only to a fail at the end. How does this experience in Quebec affect his reception by the Continental Army establishment created by George Washington? And I guess that the other flip side of that is his own perception of how he's treated by Washington and the Congress.
1: Yes, I, the Canadian campaign definitely uh – had some important influence on what would become Benedict Arnold's uh, career path. <laughs> um, he had been given an independent command from the, the Continental Army camp outside Boston to try to make a second uh, invasion path into Canada. He took an uh, un- effectively uncharted path up the Kennebec River and down the Chaudier River in Canada, which leads to the, the doorstep of Quebec City. Yeah, uh, He was given a... a force of volunteers and the small uh, bit of officially Continental Troops, some of the riflemen that have been established. Uh, and they, they make this wilderness uh, venture. Uh, starving, dying, getting lost. It is not an easy uh, trip. Mm-hmm. And when they arrive in Canada, uh, they're reported to be effectively ghosts as they, they arrive at the first Canadian settlements. Um, however, Arnold leads them on, and they arrive at the doorstep of Quebec City, uh, well ahead of Montgomery's forces, and they uh, try to get the city to surrender, but there is just enough defense and leadership inside Quebec City for the Loyalists that that it uh, stands. So eventually, at the beginning of December, uh, General Montgomery and his troops meet up with Arnold and his, and they establish the siege and then that leads to the battle of Quebec City and where Montgomery is killed in one arm of the attack, uh, Arnold is seriously wounded in the leg in the other arm uh, of the attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the immediate leadership of the forces around Quebec City uh, falls upon Arnold. He's sitting in a hospital with very serious leg wound and it is really his strength of will that keeps uh, blockade going through the, the next several months. He uh, pieces together his continental troops. He works with Canadians in a degree that General Montgomery had not done to try to get their participation support mm-hmm. and support and effectively succeeds. And then every challenge that is thrown his way uh, for the next few months, he just takes with the energy that, that is really characteristic of Arnold, whether it's money, smallpox, he takes, makes unpopular decisions, but which are probably the right choice. But along the way, with that sort of personality and the character of those decisions, he continues to make enemies. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the biggest point comes uh, in the withdrawal. Arnold is sent to lead uh, forces around Montreal. And as it becomes clear that the army is probably going to leave Canada altogether, Arnold gets orders to gather all possible supplies that he can from Montreal Uh to take back to New York. And he does this again with great energy, uh, targets all the right places to get all the right stuff. But he immediately faces accusations that he is doing it for his own personal gain. Um, and my analysis is that he's really following orders. Um, and it's playing on one of the skill sets so that he seems to be doing it really well. Um, but those people that have not liked him as things have gone now have something that they can really throw at him. So this becomes one of the earliest accusations against Arnold that distances, his, distances him from uh, any tremendous support from uh, those others that recognize his immediate military skills and uh, his abilities.
0: Mm. Let's, uh, let's go to our last set of questions here. Um, you know, First, I've got to ask, you know, You know, big analytical question. Um, Did the Quebec campaign or the city's successful defense by the British, did it really matter in the context of the American Revolution as a whole?
1: It it did not directly matter, I would say, because of its failure, but um, it raised many of the questions that would be answered in 1776 six months, a year earlier than they might have otherwise arisen and, and certainly highlighted Uh, concerns about enlistments, money, supplies, all all these things that uh, would eventually get answered, at least uh, uh, on paper, over the next year. uh, Much earlier than they would have been answered if it had been just the activities
0: of the Army outside of Boston. Okay. Second part of that, is this a missed opportunity?
1: Uh, Yes. I I think that the the failure of the Continental Congress to support the Army, uh, give it clear strategic direction, and uh, most importantly, to foster any form of Canadian self-government were, were the key failures. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I had mentioned earlier with uh, contested regions, uh, there simply was no government to you know, go in exile from Canada and right. support uh, continued Canadian participation. Uh, and, and that's where the missed opportunity was. I think militarily, uh, unless Quebec City fell, and probably even then, the campaign was doomed uh, to fail on the military aspect. It was the political side that really had any uh, hope of long-lasting effect. Okay.
0: Well, let's, let's venture finally to a counterfactual. You know, How could this have gone differently?
1: Perhaps the most important counterfactual would have been that Congress would have recognized that they did not have the means to uh, achieve their aims, and, and they would never have done anything more than uh, defend Lake Champlain. Uh, very, very, much more actively uh, uh-huh. um, but once they made the decision to go north it, it really would have been to uh, give that guidance and support to political growth in the, amongst the Canadians really forcing them to uh, find some representatives both at the local level and to join the Continental Congress to give some credence to the aims uh, of bringing Canada into the, the Continental Congress as an equal partner okay
0: Okay. All right. Well, Marcus, we wrap up with, of course, what is left are our two standard closing questions uh, we ask all of our authors. First case, you know, what are you reading now that uh, others might find worth checking out? You know, what what do you feel that you're reading that's worth sharing with our listeners? And then what your plans are for the next project? Okay. Uh, So a
1: really good book that I have just finished was uh, Philip. Pappas's Renegade Revolutionary, The Life of General Charles Lee. Uh, Charles Lee is a, and one of the most interesting characters in, in the revolution, and I think that uh, Pappas did a very good job of uh, showing the complexity uh, of General Charles Lee. Um, and then the other book that I'm digging into right now is uh, Douglas Cubson's All Canada in the Hands of the British, which is about the 1760 British campaign to conquer Canada. uh uh-huh. And uh, again, I think it's a, a very well-written book, and it is uh, a great introduction to many of the things that are going on in uh, the 1775-1776 campaign for, for Canada. It really is uh, many common themes as far as dealing with the Canadians uh, and logistic challenges, all those uh, big themes. Mm-hmm. So uh, really enjoying that book as well. Okay.
0: And future plans for work?
1: So I currently have a uh, manuscript under consideration uh, that is uh, focused on what is Chapter 17 of the Battle for the 14th Colony. It is uh, a translation of uh, Jean-Baptiste Badeau's Journal of the Invasion mm-hmm. and a parallel transcription of correspondence of New York Captain William Goforth's correspondence from that time uh, that both are relatively minor characters, but uh, very uh, objective and thinking outside of their immediate activities. So uh, interesting reading. And for a few months at the a time, they're giving parallel narratives of the same event. So it's a very uh, micro view of what's going on in the campaign. Okay. And then for other uh, efforts after that, I'm doing some research on George Rogers Clark and his uh, relationship with the French in Illinois, mm-hmm. and then a few other side projects related to the Canadian invasion.
0: Okay. Well, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to have had you.
1: Oh, it's been wonderful. I, I really appreciate you taking the time for this.
0: Oh, no problem at all. And to all of our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is your host, Bob Wintermead, thanking you for listening.